Thank you all for joining us this morning. This is a panel titled, uh, How Does Jawboning Threaten Speech? Today we'll be talking about government jawboning and what to do about it. Joining me for this discussion are Adam Kovacevich and Jenin Yunus. Jenin is an attorney at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, where she is assisting Missouri and Louisiana in their lawsuit against the CDC over government jawboning about health misinfo. Adam advocates for the social media industry as CEO of Chamber of Progress and previously worked as a senior director of public policy at Google. I'll start with some brief remarks about the state and scope of the jawboning problem. Adam and Jenin will offer comments about my paper, and then hopefully we can come up with some solutions. If you'd like to submit questions for us to answer at the end of this discussion, you can do so either directly on the event webpage or on Facebook and Twitter using hashtag Cato Technology. I recently published a paper about jawboning. It's titled Jawboning Against Speech, How Government Bullying Shapes the Rules of Social Media. And hopefully you are all able to pick up a copy on your way in. But even if I hadn't covered it in this paper recently, it would be worth having this discussion today because jawboning is a growing problem. Jawboning refers to informal government pressure. Bullying, threatening, demands, and cajoling applied by government officials to get people or companies to do things the government cannot do on its own. Jawboning was once used in attempts to control prices and in response to resurgent inflation, some politicians are using it again in the economic arena. But over the past half decade, jawboning has increasingly been used as a method of roundabout or proxy censorship. The First Amendment prohibits government speech regulation. However, by bullying the social media platforms that speakers rely on, government officials can suppress unwanted speech or interfere with platform's editorial judgment. My paper focuses on jawboning by members of Congress, but jawboning isn't limited to legislators or threatened legislation. Although legislative threats are often the most visible forms of jawboning, when government presides over antitrust cases at the state and federal level, doles out fiber optic subsidies and lucrative government contracts, there will always be some lever that officials can threaten to pull. What really concerns me, however, is how much the scope of jawboning and the number of Congress members involved has grown. When I first started combing the congressional record, for examples, in 2018 or so, almost all government demands were narrowly focused around Russian election meddling. There are still issues with this, Platforms can't be expected to secure our elections. Americans do have a right to receive foreign information. And cracking down on foreign disinfo inevitably means cracking down on some American speech that looks like foreign disinfo. But at least the scope of this jawboning was pretty limited. Then, however, jawboning sort of came home. Politicians on both sides of the aisle began making demands about domestic speech and speakers. Elected representatives seem to have become comfortable jawboning about almost everything. Shock jocks, unfalsifiable bias, 3D printed guns, even crass jokes posted by their constituents. Adam informed me that just this morning, Adam Schiff jawboned demanding that platforms do more to remove incel content. So this is a growing and constant problem. Unfortunately, it's a difficult problem to solve. Identifying jawboned content moderation decisions is exceedingly difficult. Government demands often overlap with private platform rules. Members of Congress are protected by the speech and debate clause. And it is hard for courts to correct jawboning, say, by ordering the reinstatement of banned accounts or speech without trampling on platforms' editorial and associative rights. However, the first step towards a solution is recognizing that there is a problem, and I'm confident that today's discussion will go a long way towards doing that. Jenin and then Adam, how do you view jawboning, and what do you think of my paper? <laughs> that was a great paper. <laughs> uh, 
Twitter, you know, you just meet someone, see someone online, and uh, the folks online want to hear. Okay. There we go. So, uh, I mean, I agree with your um, identification of the problem, and I've seen firsthand sort of how that plays out. So the clients, I represent clients in um, a case called Missouri v. Biden, where we're suing uh, CDC, but also actually uh, dozens of agencies, as well as the, uh, the White House itself, for um, job owning, <laughs> for telling social media companies to censor people with certain views. And in our case, the clients um, are all people who had been accused of spreading COVID misinformation, so it was all about COVID. Um, two of our clients are actually uh, Martin Kuldorf and Jay Bhattacharya of Harvard and uh, Stanford universities, respectively. They um, are you know, top epidemiologists in their field, and they had um, opposed government COVID restrictions, saying that sort of wasn't consistent with their understanding of epidemiology, and uh, offered different ideas for how we should be dealing with COVID. And they were more or less, you know, their views were suppressed on social media, also regular media. And there were uh, emails surfaced from Fauci and Francis Collins showing that they had made a concerted effort to take them down and make sure that their views weren't heard because they were dangerous, considered dangerous. Um, so I think the case illustrates quite well sort of why we have a First Amendment and why we don't want the government to be involved in this sort of thing. Um, and as, in terms of solutions, I, you want to get to that later, right? So I can <laughs> some out now. Sure. Um, so one uh, way that um, one state has dealt with this, at least, is so Texas has a law now saying that social media companies cannot censor people in Texas for, um, for viewpoint, uh, so expressing viewpoints that the government doesn't like. That um, law was upheld, well, it was uh, struck down in the district court, it was upheld in the Fifth Circuit um, in a case called Net Choice versus Paxton. And the Fifth Circuit basically found that the common carrier doctrine um, uh, allowed Texas to enact this law that prevented viewpoint discrimination. Um, the common carrier doctrine sort of says that uh, entities that service the population at large can't discriminate um, you know, based on race, religion, and uh, here it's viewpoint as well. So that is uh, obviously a controversial approach, and it, it has some problems, of course. It ends up being more or less like a national or almost a federal law, because how are the social media companies to know if somebody's based in Texas? So if they're going to abide by it, they're not going to end up censoring anybody, basically. Um, but I think that is one possible solution we might want to talk about further. Um, another point to make, I think, is that... The companies, uh, the idea that the companies should just be able to do what they want. And well, sorry, let me back up <laughs> and say that even if the federal government gets out of this or the government gets out of this, uh, which is what we're trying to do in Missouri, there's the problem that Will identified in his paper of the companies might still continue to do it because they sort of started this precedent and this is now their practice and maybe they're afraid anyway and they know the government has said these things. There's been this atmosphere of threats and coercion that if they don't do as they're told and they don't censor people that they're subject to regulation or other legal consequences. So um, another way of dealing this, with this, in my opinion, is through Section 230, which has, is supposed to shield companies, the social media companies, from liability for um, content on their platforms. They're not supposed to be treated as publishers. So the companies, you know, are sort of using this uh, to benefit themselves in both ways. They're saying, well, we're not, we're not publishers. We can't be held liable for what people say on our platforms. But then at the same time, they're using it to say, like, okay, we can censor people because Section 230 says it has um, provisions saying that you can kick people off for harassment, lewd posts, that sort of thing. Um, and there's a, a phrase that says, and other, other something. Um, otherwise, objectionable. otherwise objectionable. <laughs> which... Uh, they've interpreted to mean anything, but a lot of people would say should follow from the you know, lewd, lascivious uh, harassment, et cetera. So I think that uh, Section 230, perhaps an amendment to Section 230 is another way of dealing with this to ensure that the platforms can't discriminate based on viewpoint, um, even if the government technically gets out of it. That seems a little bit like a kind of nuclear option um, <laughs> turning to uh, cutting down on the platforms editorial rights, capabilities, et cetera, because of what is a government problem. But um, Adam? Any? Yeah. Um, well, so first of all, I, I also want to say the paper is excellent um, and I think is a really excellent contribution to this topic, which I think, frankly doesn't get enough attention. Um, 
the fact is jawboning is pervasive and it's bipartisan. I'm not even sure it's all bad, but it is pervasive. And I think that's the, the first thing I want to say. It, it, there's an aspect of jawboning that is, I think, an attempt to um, assert political power um, you know, in the absence of legislating. Legislating is hard. It requires consensus. Um, jawboning is a little bit like holding a hearing and yelling at CEOs. That's really easy. That's actually something that most um, policymakers kind of agree that they want to be able to do, even if they yell at the CEO for different reasons, right? And jawboning is going to c continue because in some sense it works. Some people call it working the refs, right? Uh, politicians on the left and the right urging the platforms to moderate or not moderate content in a certain way. And the fact is that it often succeeds. It at least succeeds in getting the platform's attention. They may not always agree with the criticism being leveled. But pretty much multiple times a week now, some policymaker is sending some letter to YouTube, Google, Facebook, Twitter. These are the biggest targets of jawboning letters that Will documented with an excellent chart in the paper. And... Uh, that's setting off typically inside the company's uh, discussion about what to do about that. And I was within uh, one of those companies, Google, for a dozen years, and we saw a lot of this. This was, I'd argue that it, one of the interesting things about jawboning is that most companies set up, you know, Washington offices, government relations offices to lobby policymakers, but there is just as much policymaker lobbying of companies, again on both sides on this question. And that creates a fascinating um, political dynamic where, where you, again, typically companies are supplicants to government, you know, uh, asking, urging policy to not hurt them or to help them. And in this case, as Will documents in the paper, in some cases, not all, but in some cases there's an implied threat. And it really is bipartisan. So, you know, there have been many cases um, <clears throat> typically by kind of, uh, you know, conservative speakers whose speech has been removed from Google or Facebook or, or Twitter, and they have sued the platforms, are arguing that that has violated their rights. And in basically all of these cases have failed, right? And one of the reasons they failed is because it's not really about Section 230 with respect to Janine. It's really about the First Amendment and the platform's own First Amendment rights to, plat to moderate their platform however they see fit. They are not agents of the government, which is what most of the suits allege. Most of the suits allege that they have essentially become extensions of the government because perhaps, you know, the White House press secretary has said something, right? And so, again, all, all, nearly, I think, all of those suits have failed, and I, I expect they will continue to fail. But I do think that this, this issue of job owning is here to stay, and one of the things I'm interested in is, like, how do we kind of deal with it? How do the platforms deal with it? Because... It's not to say that a critique that a policymaker might level of a platform's content moderation policies, whether from the left or the right, is invalid. Many of that, many, much of those criticisms might expose a new issue or a blind spot that the platform has with respect to a certain type of content. And so I actually think that's good. I think it's good that policymakers have some ability to say, hey, you know, there's this new area of content that you might want to think about revising your policies to address. Of course, where it becomes problematic is I think where it's tied to some kind of threat, which is, um, which is uh, you know, I think part of this. I'll just say one last example of this. Over the last couple months, there's been this whole back and forth between Senate Republicans and Google about Gmail spam filters and this uh, study that was done that uh, they interpreted to believe that uh, Gmail spam filters were discriminating against Republican fundraising email. <clears throat> and, you know, they were upset about it. I don't think that, I think they were misinterpreting the study, but that was what they believed. And Senator Thune introduced a bill called the, I think it was called the Political Bias Act that would have prohibited email platforms like Google from using biased filtering algorithms on emails from federal political campaigns unless a user took proactive action to apply a certain label to that email. Just last week, the RNC sued Google over this issue, right? And I, I, these are easily, I mean, these are, in my view, blatantly unconstitutional violations of the platform's own speech rights. But, um, but that threat, if you don't fix this, we're going to introduce this legislation, we're going to try to pass this, is very much kind of a common theme of a lot of job boning. Yeah, so 
Adam, you mentioned that jawboning is easier than legislating. There are also a lot of side constraints on legislation uh, that are a result of the First Amendment. It prohibits a lot of government rules and regulation around speech. In other countries, the deluge of internet-born cheap speech has been met by new government regulation. The UK's online harms bill will penalize platforms for hosting lawful but awful speech. In America, because the First Amendment prevents this sort of legislation, we nevertheless though have concerns about abusive and false speech, uh, the same concerns as everywhere else. Is jawboning a path-dependent response to the First Amendment's protections? Is it a kind of inevitable way of accommodating these demands for censorship um, in light of this, this strong prohibition on government regulation? And you know, was, could it have ended up anywhere else? I'd, I'd love both of your thoughts on this. No, I, I completely agree because what you see in, for example, the UK or, or you know, Australia, for example, they'll get um, policy, policymakers will get upset that platforms have maybe allowed a certain kind of speech, which again is legal, and they will put this kind of pressure um, themselves. Uh, after the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand, a uh, number of the, the governments put pressure on the companies to essentially to um, take action on certain types of content, vi violent legal, right? Legal under the First Amendment speech and content, but take action on it within a certain period of time. And, and of course, like, you know, there were, that might have, that something like that might have a lot of people agreeing with it, whereas other content decisions might have, few, there might be less consensus around it. I do think that, um, this is, this is an American specialty, <laughs> job owning, because of the First Amendment. It's also, um, you know, and it's it's a complicated place for the platforms to be, to be perfectly honest, too, because they're constantly having to navigate this question of kind of who who do they listen to, and this, and even if you set aside this question of like are they being threatened with regulation or a lawsuit or whatever, most companies want to preserve good relations with policymakers from both parties. That's just most companies, right? And so even setting aside the, 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 like whether there's a concrete threat, um, it, it makes them uncomfortable because it makes it hard to do that. Just before we, we get to Jen, and I have to jump in on your, your comments about Christchurch, um, because a lot of the demands after that incident implicated live streaming features generally. They didn't relate to particular speakers, but instead... Politicians demanded changes to the platform's design and architecture. And I think those styles or, or demands are very interesting because on one hand, they really alter, interfere with the platform's design. But from a user standpoint, we aren't sure who is affected and how much. It might be a future user who would have used the live streaming feature, but for this, this government well, demand that changes it. Just last week, the Attorney General of New York, Tish James, put out this report about the Buffalo shooting, which was live streamed. And she said one of her recommendations was that online platforms basically implement essentially like an army of live reviewers of all live streams, which I think is impractical. Or put it on a delay. Or put it on a delay, right? Live stream now, at all. now a, a tape delay, you know, when we had, you know, uh, uh, Monday night foot when we have Monday night football or the Oscars or something like that, that makes sense, right? You have one person doing it to, you know, a tape delay to audience of millions. Uh, doing tape delay for individual live streams, I don't think makes sense. Jen? Uh, um, yeah, I'll just go back to your question as to whether it's inevitable. And I think it's not. I mean, I think one thing that's been lost in this country is a commitment to free speech and that far too many people understand, you know, far, sorry, <laughs> far too few people understand why we have a First Amendment and why we have sort of a general, um, you know, the principle that we uh, allow free speech. And it's because the marketplace of ideas is the best way to go about things. I mean, unfortunately, bad things happen. They always will. And sometimes it will be because someone said something and somebody listened to it or someone live streamed something. But uh, having government interference in that, in my opinion, is not the way to deal with it and only adds to the problems and aggravates it. And, and you know, people have to remember that government actors are people too. And so once you start having, you know, why should they get to make the decisions about what's heard and what's not heard? And um, again, I, to go back to my case, 
what that results in is people really not hearing the uh, views of public health people of public health um, experts who dissented from the government point of view. They might not even have been in the minority, but they just didn't hold the views of the well the Biden administration at the time and prior to Biden views of people in the CDC and Anthony Fauci, and so they were silenced and um, you know. Many people might have, uh, well, I have certain opinions about how we dealt with COVID, uh, but I think that it resulted in a lot of unnecessary suffering, probably unnecessary deaths too. Um, so silencing, in my opinion, is the worst uh, solution. But it's a, a culture-born problem. Yes, that's, yeah. Mind, yes, so the, I, I think one way of dealing with this too is civics classes. <laughs> Maybe civics classes for jawboning legislators. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we've danced a little bit around the actual, the hard, hard lines of defining jawboning. And I, I think there are lots of different ideas in play, different thresholds that have been proposed. I would ask both of you, is government collaboration with platforms ever acceptable? Um, if, if not, where should platforms go for their information, um, especially during uh, you know, a, a novel pandemic where there, there aren't external to the government um, authorities that we tend to look to as, as experts on public health? Um, and even in the, the national security space, I think we've long tolerated a certain amount of collaboration between platforms and government officials. Yet again, when these relationships come home or are applied to different contexts, uh, the results can, can change and we can be very concerned about how, what, what they're collaborating about. Um, so where would either of you draw that line? Um, so I think that when the private actor is doing is working with the state um, to accomplish mutual aims, then they should be considered uh, state actors. So I'm actually dealing with exactly that in the Missouri case because the we're sort of we're alleging that these companies were acting under pressure from the government, at least pressure or coercive pressure, where the government was threatening them with regulation, other legal consequences if they didn't uh, do what the government wanted. We got a lot of discovery in the case, um, thousands of 50, over 15,000 pages of emails uh, exchanged between government officials and um, people in the tech companies. And sometimes it looks like the people in the tech companies are, uh, they're acting of their own volition. They're sort of writing emails saying, we're so eager to help you. Like, how can we stop the spread of misinformation? Let's all get together and work on this together. Now, my argument is that viewed in, against the backdrop of the course of threats that were made or the threats that were made, they can't, that can't be viewed as acting independently or acting of their own volition. But I would argue as a sort of, uh, in the alternative, if they're working together to do this and to censor people, they should be considered state actors for First Amendment purposes. Yeah, I mean, uh, with respect, that's not, no court has agreed with that. that. That's been litigated in many cases. I do think that if you think it's a problem that um, uh, policymakers urge platforms to moderate in a certain way, you should uh, hopefully have a problem no matter what, pol top, what politician of which party does it, right? So if you have a problem with, you know, the Biden administration talking to Twitter about um, uh, what they do with uh, COVID, you know, uh, information tweets, then you should have just as much problem with uh, the Senate Republicans, you know, threatening um, Google over the Gmail spam filter thing. I'm not so sure that either, one, either type of job-owning is inherently a problem so long as it's approached from a spirit of, you know, this is something we're seeing in our perch uh, in government. And hopefully then it's proposed more as a suggestion, right? Not as a, a directive, which they couldn't do anyway, and not as a threat and with no clear threat attached. Now that's hard because, you know, as you note, Will, in the paper, like even if you made no threat and you made it as a suggestion, um, companies are in the awkward position of knowing exactly what ways, you know, uh, the federal government might um, punish them, right? And so I do think it is a, it's a challenging uh, thing for companies to deal with. And, and again, I mean, having been on the inside of the companies, I think one of the things that's just been fascinating is that you now almost have a 
call it a job-owning industrial complex, right, which is not just policymakers, but groups on the outside publishing reports urging uh, platforms to act or not act on certain types of content that then filters to policymakers. And it leaves uh, companies, frankly, in a difficult position of, you know, what types of requests do they respond to, which types don't they respond to. It almost requires kind of a new a type of uh, negotiation and diplomacy um, that the companies have in part been growing. Many of the companies have content moderation, trust and safety teams, uh, team members who are based here in Washington for kind of exactly this purpose because more and more of this kind of inbound um, critique over uh, inbound job owning happens and they, you know, then spend some time thinking about do we agree with what this policymaker is saying or group saying or do we disagree? I think the uh, the NGO aspect that you bring in there is very interesting because obviously privately we can all make demands of platforms. We can all criticize and take issue with how they're approaching moderation. But in, in some cases, and I think particularly last summer with the Biden administration identifying 12 super spreaders of misinformation, um, a British NGO identified those 12 individuals in, in the beginning and really acted to, to focus uh, the conversation while the Biden administration sort of acted as enforcer, providing the threat that um, the Center for Countering Digital Hate could not on its own um, provide or, or bring to the room. Um, when it comes to, to drawing that line, I think the presence of a threat is very important. Um, you know, it, it, past cases, the Supreme Court has, has drawn two sort of different standards here between a case called Blum um, and uh, Bantam Books. And I think Bantam Books, which allows for sort of implicit threats um, or the, the presence of threatened government action rather than specific coercion that can be identified by the court, i.e. the platform saying that they made the decision because of uh, the government threat is probably the preferable standard to use. Um, I, I guess the, the another sort of sticky question in there for me um, is the combination of legislative debate and jawboning. The email um, spam filtering example that, that you brought up, um, while on one hand, I think we all can appreciate that many of the politicians involved do not think that their no spam filtering bill will pass and do see it as either a messaging bill or a way of pushing platforms to do this privately. But the punishment there is identical to what they've demanded that platforms do. So to me, that feels a lot less like jawboning than, say, proposing changes to antitrust law when a platform won't remove a speaker that you dislike. The changes to antitrust law won't force them to remove the speaker, but it will hurt them if they don't toe the line. Um, and so I think that that can be difficult when, especially around proposed changes to Section 230, uh, the intended effect and the threatened legislative action uh, kind of move together. Um, I might agree with you, except in this case, that actually that threat did prompt Google to react. They came back to the Senate Republicans and said, we have a compromise proposal that will essentially exempt political uh, email senders if they agree to certain you know, best practices, a clear unsubscribe link and things like that. The Republicans haven't taken them up on that, but even so, it didn't require you know more of a threat in order to get. I'm not even sure Google should have acted there, to be perfectly honest, but they did, and so uh, you know, so it did prompt reaction. Yeah, and I think there are competitive issues potentially as well in platforms or major platforms' decisions to pre-comply with proposed legislation or, or regulation, uh, kind of getting a leg up on their competitors even before um, the statute is, is adopted or passed. Do you have any thoughts there? Well, um, more about the uh, threat issue. Uh, so I 
I think I probably differ from you a little bit. I think uh, I, I don't know that a threat is necessary to find state action, um, in my opinion. And in the Fourth Amendment context, this comes up uh, a bit where the government uh, you know, tells someone, well, I don't really have probable cause to go search so-and-so's house, but um, you know, you're a private actor. Can you go in there and take a look around? And courts have said, well, they can't do that. And if they do, then that's a search for Fourth Amendment uh, purposes. Um, so I still, I don't necessarily believe that there needs to be coercion to find state action. Um, I'll concede that it's all, that's new territory in the sort of First Amendment social media context. So there's not much case law that's directly on point or really any. And I, I guess what gives me most pause there is the idea of a government official transforming a platform into a state agent merely by yelling at it. Even if the platform resists, they're clear about resisting, they aren't going to take the action. Um, if, if merely by directing speech at them, you can then you know, perhaps get a court to uh, treat them like a government agent and force them to reinstate speech that they've removed, then you've just ended up with a kind of a jawboned must carry. Uh, so that, that's, I guess, what, what keeps me from going with a with that threshold, even if from the removal standpoint, it would certainly make it easier to contest or, or prevent. Um, for for both of you in this, this court realm, um, when we think of judicial remedies to jawboning, historic cases, in historic cases, courts have ordered reconnection. Um, there was a phone sex hotline case in, I believe, the mid-70s or early 80s, uh, Mountain Bell, in which a local prosecutor threatened a phone company uh, with prosecution if they didn't remove a phone sex hotline. The uh, telephone company did remove it, the sex hotline sued, and the court ordered that they be at least temporarily or or for the time being, reinstated, but left it open to the phone company to remove them for violating their policies at a later date. I think very quickly afterwards, the phone company turned around and removed them. Um, as well, in Backpage v. Dart, uh, probably better known uh, kind of credit card jawboning case, um, neither of the, the implicated credit card companies uh, restored service to the, the jawboned website, even after the sheriff that had, had made threats um, was enjoined from doing so in the future. So in the past, even in these very binary uh, on-off connection environments, you either the hotline is either available or it's not, it's been hard for courts to offer a lasting remedy. I, I in the paper, and today would, would argue that it's even more difficult with social media because content moderation decisions are sort of constant. They're much more opaque. There are more options than merely leaving it up or taking it down. You can algorithmically juice or reduce its uh, distribution. And so how should courts approach providing remedies in clear cases of jawboning where they've found uh, a decision to have been compelled by a state actor what should a court do about this? Well, I, I mean, what we are asking for and typically ask for is declaratory and, and injunctive relief. So the court says this is a First Amendment violation um, and you can't do this. The government can't be involved going forward. Again, I get your point that that doesn't mean the companies will necessarily go back to how they were behaving before. Although I think they might because um, I don't know that the market favors this type of viewpoint censorship. I mean, that's presumably why they weren't, weren't doing it that much before um, the government became involved. And it certainly drives people away. People want to be on these platforms that have a lot of uh, debate and a lot of dissent. That's why, you know, if you go to Gab or Getter, they're not very interesting because they're sort of echo chambers of, uh, <laughs> and they don't get that much. They don't get that many subscribers because it's not that interesting the way that Twitter and Facebook are, so. 
But I think the presence of Gab and Parler and all these alternatives make it, are going to make it impossible for these complaints to succeed because it's not like the phone company example. There was one phone company then, right? Being kicked off of Twitter, you, you're not silenced. You have plenty of places to, to uh, speak. And so I think that um, I'm very skeptical about any of these court challenges succeeding. And as I said, there's a half dozen cases that have failed because they've failed this step of of saying that, as you said, yelling at the platforms does not transform the platforms into state state actors. And, and again, the platform, there's many, many, many cases of, of platform, upholding platforms own uh, First Amendment um, speech rights to carry or not carry whatever they see fit. And people may not like that. They, you know, there's obviously moves by um, Justice Thomas and others to declare platforms common carriers and require them to carry everything. Um, you know, I don't think that's consistent at all with the First Amendment or even the Supreme Court's own jurisprudence. I think one of the things that is interesting about this, though, is that companies are very disincentivized to um, challenge this in court, right? Uh, people who've, whose speech has been removed are very incentivized, as, as, as has happened. But, you know, companies are not going to uh, be picking legal fights in general with, um, with the um, politicians who jawbone them. <laughs> you know, that's just not something that, that I think is even politically wise. So um, I do think, as I said earlier, I think it's much more likely that, like, this is something that's here to stay and that the remedy isn't really in the courts. More to the, the point, like, the companies aim to, I believe, and should devise content policies that are um, essentially, you know, broadly applicable, right? So you don't want to, if you're a platform, you don't want to be developing a content platform because politician X came to you and said you should have this policy, right? That is not a durable policy because what happens when the politician Y comes to you and says the exact opposite thing, right? So when you're developing content um, policies for one of these platforms, you need to be thinking ahead about kind of how do we create a policy here that is durable. And again, we're talking about speech that is legal, but which the platforms for one reason or another decide that they don't want on. White supremacists, you know, Nazi uh, speech, uh, uh, Holocaust denial, etc. So <clears throat> that's the challenge of content moderation because it all exists in this extra legal environment. Well, I, I disagree with some of it. <laughs> I mean, uh, first of all, you know, Access to a Twitter account or having a Twitter account is not the same as having a Gab or Getter account, so practically speaking. And I mean, I say that as a, uh, a very active Twitter user myself. If I were to lose my Twitter account, it would really, uh, it would have a very negative impact on my career and my ability to reach an audience. So I do think, I don't think it's that simple. Um, with respect to the platform's own First Amendment rights, which uh, the Fifth Cir Circuit rejected that contention in the Net Choice case I mentioned earlier, um, it, I find that a little bit not a little disingenuous. I mean, the idea that they're 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 sort of a publication that's putting forth a certain perspective, or that they really, um, you know, are exercising control over the message that's sent on Twitter is 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 absurd. I mean, there's no specific message that Twitter is conveying. They're just sort of uh, silencing various people who for whatever for whatever reason um they don't want on there or the government doesn't want on there i guess these are sort of two separate questions um but i i don't think and i don't think again that they should be able to get the liability protection that they have under 230 for content on their platforms and then try to get you know try to claim that they do have um they they are publishers for first amendment purposes i i I have to, to fire back there a bit. I mean, speaking specifically of Twitter, then some of the rules which uh, generate the most frustration, particularly on the right, seem to encapsulate certain values. You look at the, the prohibition on dead naming that most other platforms don't have. That, that seems like a value or stance that, that Twitter is pushing in its rules. I guess also just maintaining a... Um, a nice environment for advertisers is very important to all of these platforms and has certainly justified a lot of removal in, in the past. Um, and that would seem like a, a pretty important business reason for exercising that kind of judgment. Um, but we're almost into uh, our Q&A time. In your lawsuit, you've been uncovering a lot of jawboning that, that happened in private, um, while my paper focused on these sort of public statements by politicians in, in most cases. 
do you notice any qualitative differences between the style of communication that government officials use in private and the grandstanding we see in, in public? And Adam, you can chime in with any of your experience at, at Google with this. Yes, um, actually, as I sort of uh, referenced earlier, the it's a much more collaborative tone in the emails. Um, they sound a lot like they're working together. There are a couple um, emails and Slack messages that are that sound different. Where, uh, especially in C the CISA within DHS, they're saying things like, um, "We have to overcome the tech company's hesitation to work with the government. We've got to get them more comfortable working with us." So it sounds sometimes like there's coercion going on, but then often it strikes a more collaborative tone. Was that institution, the CISA, engaging with different platform representatives than others, or? Um, yeah, I, CISA engages with all of them. Well, all the big ones, I think. Um, but I guess yeah. I mean like security oh. staff versus oh. content moderation staff. Is that oh, um, they they engage with content moderation staff. Yeah, yeah, they they all do. Um, yeah. Hmm. Anything you saw? So uh, shortly after I joined Google in 2007, I got a call from a friend who worked on the Hill for a member of Congress, and there was an ad. When you did a Google search for that member of Congress's name, there was an ad from a third-party organization that says, Congressman X gets an F from our group. I don't know if it was NRA or Children's Defense Fund, whoever it was. doesn't matter. And this person asked me, uh, because their boss had seen it, you know, is that, is that okay? Can you, can you, can you mention the boss's name? And, you know, is it possible to get that taken down? And I said, well, no, it's not, you know, we can't take that down. That's, uh, that's a legitimate ad under the company's services. But, you know, it kind of, um, to me, I, the, the staffer was a bit sheepish in asking. I think probably, uh, didn't necessarily want to, but the boss had asked, um, him to do it. And probably was a little bit relieved that I had said no, right? And so I do think that, um, you know, platforms have had to also develop this fortitude, this discomfort of telling people in government no, right, on job-owning examples. And, and, and sometimes, again, the, the points are valid and they might agree with the criticism. But, uh, but I do think that, that, you know, that is yet another way this has kind of, you know, made, made companies work in Washington more complex. I hope that awareness can bring more of a backbone. That example is interesting because in this case, it didn't violate the rules. But if it had, I think we should still look look with a lot of suspicion on some congressional staffer being able to vector enforcement towards some violating content that perhaps without their call never would have gotten any platform attention. You know, there's Yeah, though I think if it had violated rules, then – you know, I think, again, there's the platforms you want to be able to say, look, anytime anybody sees a violation of our rules, bring that to us, right? That's, I, I, I don't think of that, it's funny, I don't think of that as jawboning per se, because what I see with most jawboning is politicians asking the platforms to make new rules um, for new types of content. It feels like a squeaky wheel problem. Oh, I mean, squeakier than you. No, I can see. I mean, but but squeaky wheel is is why jawboning continues, right? Because squeaky wheels always get grease. I actually, yeah. Can I? Sorry, I wanted to add to <laughs> what I said earlier. So, also, there were obviously a number of conversations that took place um, either over Zoom or over the phone, and so for that reason, the judge ordered uh, depositions of a number of federal officials in the lawsuit. Um, including Anthony Fauci. So even though the emails strike a more conciliatory tone, we don't really know what happened in conversations that were, you know, over the phone or Zoom. Is the really bad jawboning happening on, on wire or signal? <laughs> Who knows? Um, so well, thank, thank you both for these comments. I want to throw it open to the audience for, for some questions. Um, I'm not sure we have a, a microphone holder in out there. Um, Hi. Can, oh, okay. Hi, I'm Deborah Weiss. Thank you so much for this panel. Uh, I'd like to address this question to you. Unless I misunderstood you, it sounded to me like you were equating policymakers who are hinting or pressuring or coercing social media companies to censor certain types of information to be 
equivalent to the senator or other policymakers who are pressuring social media companies to not censor various different viewpoints. Can you comment on that, please? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think those are basically two types of job owning, right? I mean, to caricature a bit, um, in general, I think you see Democrats pushing platforms to moderate more and Republicans pushing platforms to moderate less. There are exceptions to that, but I think those are the two partisan flavors of job owning. How so? Well, again, I think the First Amendment is uh, inci- is cited with respect wrongly here. The, the, you do not have a First Amendment right to say whatever you want to on Twitter, right? The platforms do have a First right to moderate their platforms as they see fit. And, um, and the cases are arguing that when policymakers have urged the platforms to do something that they've transformed the platforms into state actors and that has essentially become a First Amendment violation because it's been a nexus of government and platforms, they haven't succeeded because as Will said, those courts have basically said, no, just, you know, policymakers encouraging the platforms to do something hasn't equated to state action. But, you know, Twitter, um, Facebook, Google kicking somebody off because they violate their um, rules is not a First Amendment violation. Let's, let's throw it to Robbie. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Lunch together. Very fascinating remarks. Thank you all so much. Um, so I'm wondering if um, so with, with job owning, right? It, it's the collaborative nature of this that we're concerned about to varying degrees. Is interesting because, but really the harm is on the job, the, the government is doing the job owning and the companies are being job owned and they're kind of victims in the same way that like, so it's not, it's not when, when the company's complying is not necessarily wrong. It's the, the action on the government parts that's wrong. And that's the part we want to prevent. Like if I, you know, if I go to the police and say my roommate is making meth, like I haven't done any, I, I get to tell the police that if I want, if the police, come into my apartment and and search without a warrant, they've done something wrong. But me doing the equivalent action isn't wrong. It's only wrong because they're the government and they're not allowed to do that. So I guess my question is, do we have, um, can we, are there solutions to contemplate on, on the lines of like, there can be a, a law or maybe it's not even a law, but it's like a, just a policy that the, like the CDC should have imposed on it a policy that its staffers are not allowed to communicate with Facebook and Twitter in this manner. Like it's a personnel kind like we need to we need to prevent the actual agents of the state from behaving in this manner. And then the companies won't feel this same kind of pressure is what we're sounding like. So are, are there do we have ideas along those lines of like, no, and especially if we're contemplating legislative remedies anyway, it seems like the short, like the easier thing to do is say, if we're putting legislation on the table, here's a, now this is the new policy. This agency cannot do this. So I, I think that's a, a solid idea for this agency side jawboning. It's not something I deal with quite as much in the paper because, again, it is much more private. Um, whether that would require a, an act of Congress versus notice and comment rulemaking, executive order, um, you know, it might be easier to do without legislation so long as you have a friendly administration. Um, I, I would liken that approach to what I propose for Congress, which is, on one hand, obviously protected by the speech and debate clause. So as a legal matter, when it comes to suing Adam Schiff, say, over his speech, which has already happened, and uh, the, the plaintiffs did not succeed for a number of reasons, but one of them being this, this speech and debate clause. However, Congress can make its own rules for its members. Uh, just as it can prevent them from speaking over their time or being rude to one another on the floor, um, it could limit jawboning. Obviously, how you phrase this will be a source of politicking and, and will matter, but getting some kind of rule on the books that then members can hold one another to account, um, I think would, would be a step forward in this space. And what you're describing sounds like the executive agency version of that.
Hi, I'm Jessica Malugin from CEI. I wondered, all three of you, if you're familiar with it, do you have any thoughts on the legislation that is, I think, a Jordan-Comer bill that was introduced that I wrote down the name because it does not stick. It's the Protecting Speech from Government Influence Act. If you were familiar with that and what you thought about that being a... I'm afraid I'm oh, well. not familiar with it. Could you please inform the <laughs> panel and all of our viewers? It, it's designed to prevent government employees from influencing. So, I mean, it's it's on that side, right? Which is where I would say the problem is. Of course, I would also say it's the same problem. Um, government um, not letting... Influencing platforms, private platforms in this way is the same problem as government saying that private platforms can't control their own private property. I'm with you about the government shouldn't be influential here, but I think you lose a lot of people in the middle when you say, and we all have to treat them like they're railroad tracks. Um, and the example earlier um, about the phone company who went back later um, and kicked the sex line off is an example of how even common carriers still have rights of refusal. So I don't think you'd really get around some of your worst actors. Without without looking at that bill, it's interesting. I mean, I first of all, I don't actually think most job owning comes from agency, you know, employees. It's really coming from members of Congress and the administration, whoever's in charge. The to me, the key test is like, would you support a proposal if you know, for if you're a partisan, if you would support a proposal, if if your side was in charge, right? Would you want to hobble your side with the same restrictions? People forget this, but early in COVID, the Trump White House, Michael Kratzios, who's the deputy CTO, urged the online platforms to minimize COVID misinformation, the same thing that the Biden administration later ended up doing, right? So it's like, I just, you know, so, so would you, you know, you, with any proposal like that, you got to like, say like, would I be willing to live under this too, right? Or, you know, when, when White House flips to another party, would, I would want that president of my party flip to, you know, to live under that. I'll, I'll have to read the text. Um, I think the stickiest part of any legislation like that will come in the national security realm. And not just because there's more agreement about cooperation in, in removing speech, but because the speech that's seen as threatening or dangerous often requires more government side intelligence to identify. Uh, so I'll, I'll be reading it looking carefully for those sorts of mentions. Thank you. Hi, <clears throat> excuse me. Hi, Carl Golovin. First, there was a quote that I, I don't know where it came from. Maybe it'll be of interest for all the research. Uh, what we can't do by law, we do by policy. And the clear inference of that is that uh, governing by policy is fundamentally wrong and that you know, we've gone way off the tracks when we ceased to simply you know, legislate laws and enforce them. But uh, aren't the roots of, quote, job owning ultimately the uh, moneyed interests that use our electoral processes to put their candidates in office who then influence which people are political appointees, um, and then their influence can pervade the you know, top levels of their agency. Uh, so isn't, that, isn't job owning really traceable then to problems with electoral uh, finance reform? And actually, it connects with another part of Cato, monetary policy reform. The nature of our system of credit facilitates uh, a fairly small part of the population having undue influence on um, who gets into office, who even the candidates are for both parties. But comment, and this is more fun maybe, uh, any comment on Elon Musk's imminent closing on the Twitter deal, which seems to have a lot of uh, people feeling anxious that he might create true free speech on Twitter? Well, just on, on that last one, I think from a, as, as we're thinking about jawboning, um, he's, he's an interesting case because on one hand, he's, um, voiced a lot of support for a freer or more liberally governed Twitter. At the same time, compared to most tech CEOs, he seems to have uh, many more connections to the federal government and interests that are implicated in government contracts, both here and in other countries, um, than, you, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, perhaps. And, and so I think there's, you know, potentially a double-edged sword on, on jawboning there, where the man is um, ideologically more hostile to jawboning or, or um, collaborating with the state, but on the other, perhaps more vulnerable to some of the threats that may be leveled at him.
strong. Thank you. So we're near the end, so I want to say a word for jawboning. Um, so the first premise of saying a word for jawboning is that uh, the platforms, the really big ones, look a lot like governments. They can coerce people, and they also have policy. They lack certain elements of it. Uh, but then let's go back to the and ask what kind of policies are going to come out about speech, all things being equal. Uh, let's go back to the comments about NGOs, right, and your comment about Google. That's going on heavily, right? The thing about, so that's organized interest, which is his points, right? Organized interests are trying to affect the speech policies of these small kind of quasi-governments. The, the thing I note about that inside the United States, and maybe more generally, is that there's an asymmetrical mobilization. That is, only one side of the political spectrum is mobilized in, in that kind of work, right? Inside the companies or near the companies. So in that regard, jawboning, complaining, yelling uh, at the companies is spreading the level of conflict. Because if you just have groups in sort of a private conflict, you're going to get whatever those groups want, right? But if you spread the conflict, you're going to have a more balanced debate, and you're going to have a more balanced policy outcome, if you see what I mean. So the case, you're more likely to be near the median voter. Uh, in the case I've described, with jawboning. I'm not sure I believe this argument, but it seems correct. Well, I kind of, I mean, I, I disagree with you a little bit. The fact is that uh, both the right and the left jawbone the platforms. There may be different, no, I mean, that is just true, having been on the inside of the companies. Okay. And actually, that, that's kind of, I mean, the truth is that this is kind of why I, you know, the kind of job owning that says, well, you're missing, hey, platform, you're missing something here, right? That can be good, right? It can illuminate the blind spots of the company's employees. And that's why I think it can be good, right? Um, but I do, so, but that's in the absence of a threat, right? So I, I, that's why I'm not inclined to say this is all bad, because I think sometimes it, it has it has made the company employees more aware of how other people might see um, something that aren't the dominant culture within the company. Um, I, given polling I've seen about most Americans' attitudes towards speech, it seems as though everyone has something that they want banned or censored. And in light of that, I'm not sure whether dragging platform rules closer to the views of the median voter is advisable. Sorry. Oh, I mean, I, I'm, I share your view on that. I don't have much new to say. <laughs> All right, well, let's, uh, before we end, get one question from online. We've had a lot of folks throw questions in there. And Sophia asks, to what extent uh, does the fact that these agencies are based in the U.S. have a bearing on the issue of jawboning? What are the variations in the extent of jawboning between domestic users who may be able to use the First Amendment and foreign users who do not have the same power? Well, I mean, as I said earlier, I think jawboning is at its height in the United States because of the First Amendment, um, because uh, there's ample room for being able to, you know, encourage platforms or discourage them to moderate in a certain way. So I do think that's the United States. I guess what I would, would add there, and we may not think of this as, as traditional an example of jawboning, but in many countries without our First Amendment or rule of law writ large, individual company employees will face sanction, arrest, sometimes sort of informal arrest, being black bagged by the local uh, security agency. Um, and this is very much a form of, of jawboning, um, though it's sort of so beyond the pale in, in the United States that I think it sometimes is separated from that conversation. But it's still informal pressure. And I like the American system. The, 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 one of the things about the alternative system is you look at a Holocaust denial. That's not illegal in the United States, but it is illegal in Germany. It's very easy to then enforce 
enforce that in Germany, right? Because it's clearly stated in the law. Um, in the U.S., it's probably a little bit more difficult, right? Because it's not a sort of a clear prohibition against the law. And, it, and again, platforms that make different, not all platforms ban Holocaust denial. Some platforms allow it. Um, I'm not sure I entirely understood the question, the initial question. <laughs> what was the... Asking, uh, comparing jawboning in the United States oh. and, and jawboning abroad or users' rights vis-a-vis jawboning in either place. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a question I haven't thought a lot about. And incidentally, there's a First Amendment right to receive information. So there's an argument to be made that even if people are being banned in, uh, or silenced in other countries, I guess there could be a, you could assert a First Amendment right to hear their views here. Um, but I don't know how that would play out. It seems very complicated and something I'd have to think much more about. Probably won't be litigated for a while. No. <laughs> well, I think we're, we're up on time here. It is uh, just past one o'clock. So thank you all for joining us for this, this conversation. Um, those of you who tuned in online, those of you who are here in person, um, there's lunch just, just outside uh, so we can get that and then have a chat ourselves in here around these tables. Um, I hope that this, this conversation has been interesting and, and compelling for all of you, but most of all that it's given you the tools to recognize jawboning when you see it out in the world, uh, when you see your elected officials in, engaging in it, and that you will feel empowered to hold them to account for, for this behavior. So a big, big thank you to Adam Jenin for uh, joining me up here today. Um, and thank you all for tuning in.